0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Welcome to Inside Geneva. There's no prizes this week for guessing what our topic is. It's the one the whole
1: world is talking about. A new Chinese coronavirus, a cousin of the SARS virus, has the international community on alert.
2: Carefully, doctors in Wuhan put on their suits and masks. The sickness that started in their city has built in strength and seeped out sending infection rates in China rocketing 50%.
1: The Wuhan coronavirus has hit a new milestone in China. Now with nearly 6,000 cases, it has surpassed the number of SARS cases China reported back in
3: 2003. Good evening. Our main story is that all British citizens in China should leave the country if they can to minimise the risk of exposure to the coronavirus.
0: Yes, that's right, the novel coronavirus. It's been dominating headlines everywhere for the last few weeks. We have got a great panel of guests today to talk about it. First, Dr. Suri Moon. She is co-director of the Global Health Centre at the Graduate Institute here in Geneva. Then we have Gianluca Burci, adjunct professor of international law and also former legal counsel to the World Health Organisation. And as ever, our resident analyst, cynic, doubter and devil's advocate, Danny Warner. Let's talk first maybe to you suri um you hear headlines like that you're a public health expert it's new year's eve which is when we first kind of started to hear about this what's going through your mind
2: I think whenever we suspect that there's a new pathogen that's been identified, there's some really basic questions that we would want to know. Of course, what's the cause of the illness? Uh, How transmissible is it? How deadly is it? And because this originated in China, of course, many of us were thinking, is this another SARS? And what about you, Gianluca? Because obviously the alarm
0: bells must have started ringing in the World Health Organization. You've had experience of that yourself.
3: Well, I assume, first of all, uh, when the alarm bell went off... Uh, China already knew it was a coronavirus. So that must have raised concerns because we think back of SARS. We think of the similar disease, that spread from Saudi Arabia. So highly transmissible, unclear origin. So I think there must have been some concern and uh, in particular, uh, an urge to start really working hard with the Chinese to secure the cooperation in trying to, uh, to understand what was going on.
1: Danny? Is there a learning curve? I mean, this is, again, you talked about Gianluca Sars. We've seen these things before. Does the World Health Organization, the international community react better? Are we getting better at dealing with these kinds of
3: situations? I think we are. I mean, I I can only sort of judge from what I see from outside WHO now, but the initial confusion or disorientation that we saw at the time of SARS didn't happen now. Uh, We have a whole emergency programme in WHO that was created after Ebola. Uh, So we have procedures in place. So WHO, I think, um, swung up in action quite quickly. And also the Chinese. I mean, I know we've seen the press that at the beginning they tried to suppress rumours and and so on. But, I mean, it's a different story from SARS. Uh, So I think WHO and China started working together early and and, and pretty well. Yeah.
0: Do you go along with that, Suri? I mean, a lot of people are a bit doubtful about China <coughs> because of SARS, in fact.
2: Absolutely. Oh, well, I would definitely agree that there have been major improvements in both WHO at the international level within the Chinese government. But I also think that every major outbreak we've seen over the last 20 years has been uh, very different, very difficult to predict. And one thing that is quite unique about this outbreak is that it's probably the most highly politicized that I've ever seen. It is coming right in the middle of a, of a time when, we have massive tensions between uh, superpowers, of course, between China and the US. Uh, China is ascending in terms of its political and economic power. Um, and so the, the challenges that come with this outbreak, I think, are unprecedented in many ways.
0: Danny, I know before we went on here, you were speculating a bit that there might be some people in capitals around the world who are watching China's economy take this massive hit and feeling not distraught about it.
1: No, there's, there's an element of... Free, transparent, open Western societies against the closed, not transparent Chinese societies. And I think that's part of some of the criticisms. What I do find positive here is that everyone looks to the World Health Organization as the convener, as the responsible organization within the UN system. That's not true for other crises around the world. So I think there's something that the World Health Organization has gained a certain reputation and legitimacy to deal with these kinds of crises.
2: I would imagine that a lot of people within WHO are also thinking back to the West African Ebola crisis when they were not necessarily universally recognized as the leader or the convener Um, when it came to that particular global health crisis. I think there's a need also to um, reestablish reputation authority. And I think a lot of that has been done over the last five years, um, partly because of some of the developments john Luke already mentioned, the emergencies program. I think the fact that Dr. Tedros has clearly taken a high-level political profile in leading on the response and going to visit President Xi in China, um, offering daily press briefings, sometimes twice a day. We're getting public communications from WHO to communicate about uh, what's the latest, um, <clears throat> part of the latest findings and concerns. I mean, we're seeing WHO really, I think, also elevating its own uh, profile in this crisis.
3: Also, if I may, uh, something maybe less uh, spectacular from a media point of view, but very important, very effective, is the guidance that WHO put on its web. If you go to the coronavirus page, you will see... Quite a number of, of, of guidance, for example, on masks, infection control and so on. That's a guidance that the world is looking for. And that to me the big lesson of SARS. If you want one of the assumptions of international organization, they're created by states and they're supposed to serve states. But if you put all this stuff on the web, you bypass states. You go straight to the hospital, to the person, to the airline. And so that's a big uh, Development into the 21st century, I think. and yeah.
0: But a big responsibility as well. And I think, again, we saw, if I can compare, say, reporting on SARS or avian influenza and then Ebola with this one, it was like the spotlight was switched on immediately. And every day we had... And we saw the, the cases rose, like they rocketed up. And yet, to begin with, the World Health Organization was... Some critics might have said overprotective of China and playing down any risk to the, to the rest of the world. Jan-Luc, have you got a comment on that?
3: Well, as as Suri said, this is a very political situation. It's an illusion to think that just pure epidemiology of science. So clearly there was a bit of a ballet with China about declaring or declaring the emergency. So there must have been uh, discussions with Tedros. As Suri said, the very fact that uh, the DG went to Beijing and met with the president is very emblematic. Um, so there is some conservatism at the beginning, and also the fact that WHO hesitated to declare the emergency, people were asking, speculating why, that's the nature of the beast in a way.
0: Of course, he did then declare, I mean, in fact, we can hear Tedros just now after first saying, no, it's not, I think just five days later, when the case is really uh, increasing again, emergency press conference, emergency meeting, emergency committee, This is what he had to say.
4: We don't know what sort of damage this virus could do if it were to spread in a country with a weaker health system. We must act now to help countries prepare for that possibility. For all of these reasons, I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus.
0: He's still there saying, though, Suri, it's a real emergency for China and the concern is least developed countries. and That's the reason for declaring the international health emergency.
2: I think one could reasonably have made a case that it was an emergency earlier. Um, But I also very much agree with what Gianluca was saying, that uh, WHO had to balance getting Chinese cooperation, uh, particularly information sharing and that if they had declared the emergency uh, too early before the trip to Beijing probably it would have been much harder to get the flow of information that was necessary to uh, advise and inform the rest of the world so I think it was really a judgment call and uh, you know I, I don't think the delay made a material difference frankly in the way other governments uh, the media or airlines were responding because everybody was already paying close attention everybody was already um, uh, alarmed there was no no need to ring a Another alarm. Uh, of course, there is uh, ongoing concern about countries with weaker health systems, with fewer resources. Are they able to detect um, and and handle cases that might arrive on their on their shores? But I don't think that was the material change from one week to the next. I think the material change was a visit to Beijing. Danny,
1: what is the difference for the man in the street, woman in the street between an emergency declared by the WHO? And not an emergency declared because it might be an emergency for someone who has a cold or the virus before the WHO declares an emergency. Yeah, that's so what?
0: That's my question too, actually, because we focus so much on the, will they, won't they? Yeah, is true. it an international emergency or not? Has it made a difference this time when when countries are already shutting borders and cancelling flights?
3: Well, the emergency was declared under the international health regulations. International health regulation is like a treaty. Uh, So it's a legal instrument and WHO has to abide by it. And so the declaration of emergency is part of the mechanism of the IHR, as we call it by its acronym. Uh, Of course, that was supposed to be alert, the ringing the bells. But here there was no alert. I mean, the world was only fully aware. So people have been asking, as you said, what's the gain? What do we gain? What difference does it make? I think it's symbolic politically symbolic. It unlocks certain powers for WHO. It can make what we could call temporary recommendation the countries are supposed to follow. Not everybody does. So it has an internal difference. But Externally, frankly, I also wonder... Uh, but it, if you want, it's very emblematic. It's like the climax or the situation. This thing is is, is, is is out of control and the world needs to come together to try to control it. So there's a lot of symbolism, if you want. That's why everybody was waiting, is it, is it not?
0: Can we move on? I mean, I think that's, re- that's really, really interesting. We focus so much on it. I do wonder whether sometimes it, people get more alarmed because it now has this status symbol... And one of the things that ordinary people like me or relative of mine who's heading off to uh, China very soon, um, or theoretically heading off to China very soon, is I need to know more about this. How would I get sick? What would be my chances? How do I protect myself? I talked to Sylvie Brion, the World Health Organization. She had a really interesting press conference a few days ago where she talked about an infodemic of rumour and misinformation. Just have a listen to what she had to say.
2: When uh, you deal with epidemic, you rapidly see that in addition to the epidemic of diseases, we often have an epidemic of information. And it's really an epidemic of rumours or false uh, information that is circulating at the same time. And every outbreak has its infodemic. And so we have realised over time that uh, this infodemic could be really an obstacle for a good response and hamper effective implementation of countermeasures.
0: So some of the things I've heard and read are eating onions can protect you against this novel coronavirus, eating garlic, black pepper... We've also seen some really frightening uh, videos on social media of people like almost like dropping like flies in supermarkets, theoretically coming from Wuhan, but they can't be verified. How can people find out the truth here? It's very difficult. There's a vacuum of information that science is not able to provide yet.
2: I think this is a huge challenge, and it's, it's one that we see at the beginning of every outbreak that involves a novel pathogen, where we understand very little about, uh, you know, even the basics. How is it transmitted? Are you infectious when you don't have obvious symptoms? And one thing that I think is very important for WHO to, to do and what it has been doing is trying to provide guidance uh, directly to the public, directly to governments, to companies, on here's what we know, and here's what we advise based on this knowledge. Um, what I think is trickier to communicate publicly is, here's what we don't know, and therefore where it's difficult to draw some clear conclusions. And I think when it comes to medical treatment, for example, and transmission, I think WHO has done a great job in sending those messages clearly, and in a world of misinformation, WHO is one of the authorities that the everyday person on the street will turn to, you know, on Twitter or on the website to find out what is the latest advice. In in, in terms of travel restrictions, for example, there's been a lot more debate. And so I think on travel, there's a huge amount of uncertainty but this is also where a big part of the economic impact is is coming John Luka?
3: Well, the, uh, the role of social media, of course, goes beyond crisis. Thinks of the, the wave of vaccine hesitancy, in good part driven by these lunatics on, on, on YouTube and so on. So it's a huge problem and difficult to counter this disinformation. Also because the suicide, sometimes it's like how to prove the negative, how to prove the vaccine, don't give autism or narcolepsy or whatever. There's definitely a role for WHO, but a huge role for the media, for the media like, like, like you. Uh, in, in in playing a constructive role, uh, which very frankly sometimes is not always the case.
0: This was going to be one of my questions. And Danny, I know you want to come in as well, but I, I have also watched the coverage of this. and the, Oh, my goodness, are we being too alarmist? We're rushing. It's the lead story every day. We have endless demands from our editors. Another line, do us another story on the coronavirus. Maybe we should try and keep calm. Yeah, just
1: to follow up on that, my father used to tell me when he was a young boy at the beginning of the 20th century about the Spanish influenza, 50 million people died. So I'm wondering also about the panic, the emergency and a sense of perspective. That's not to say that people are not dying and it's not a terrible thing. But I still wonder about whether this emergency panic, whether we're overdoing some of it.
2: Well, I think it's precisely the memory of the Spanish influenza, actually, that's causing so much panic because it's uh, been 100 years since then. Everybody has been waiting for the next major uh, pandemic. And we keep
0: being told we're due one
2: anytime. Exactly. They arise periodically. Some people yeah. have said this is transmitted in a very similar way to influenza. It, has some, it bears some similarity. And could this be, in fact, that crisis? So, in, in fact, the Spanish uh, influenza experience is, I think, still burned in, in many people's memories. Um, perhaps not as clearly as as, as with your fathers, um, but I wanted to come back for for a minute, if I could, to the misinformation theme because I think that. You know, if we look at what's happening with measles, for example, no matter how good the evidence, no matter how authoritative WHO or, you know, a national public health authority like the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., you know, The Lancet, you know, very well-respected medical journal, everybody is aligned uh, and and the evidence is very clear and the messages are very clear. And yet it's not been enough to convince people to vaccinate their children against measles. And I think it's going to be the same thing with coronaviruses, regardless of uh, how well the public health authorities do do in making uh, clear, understandable messages to the public, we live in a time where uh, people don't have faith in the traditional sources of information, whether that's traditional media like uh, BBC or traditional authorities like medical journals or WHO. And so I think one thing that WHO has done that is really laudable is partner very quickly with some of the social media platforms. They've
0: got a whole team just for this crisis trying to challenge some of the more dangerous yeah. myths that are out there.
2: Yeah. But
1: will the Chinese, just about information, will this change Chinese regulations dealing with markets and animals on a national level? Because that seems to be where this started.
2: I think we still don't have a clear understanding of where it started and how this uh, virus most likely leaped from an animal to a person. I think that's the leading theory is that it began in the seafood market. We've heard that the Chinese government has already cracked down on a number of um, wildlife markets uh, in the country, whether that will last you know is is anybody's guess for me one of the bigger questions is how will this influence the chinese government's attitude towards its social media platforms towards uh media reporting information flow among its citizens more broadly i think that is uh, going to have a far more profound impact potentially than on you know the 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 eating habits of um of some citizens
3: many of these viruses uh, more and more, jump from animals to humans, uh, what we call zoonotic diseases. And by and large, we know which are the dangerous species. These are rodents, monkeys, bats, some kind of birds. And still, we chase after these viruses only after they explode, and so we waste precious time, and we waste even more time to find a vaccine, to find antivirals, and so on. Uh, there's a project that unfortunately has been defunded by the Trump administration that was run by the University of California to do precisely that, to literally go to countries that have are very rich in this kind of uh, species of animals and literally capture some of these animals and try to get the blood and try to identify in advance some of these viruses.
0: A virus uh, that, that could jump species. That could jump to humans. Mm-hmm. Of course, there
3: are many variables. But at least we start reducing the uncertainty and reducing the time that we waste at the beginning of a crisis in trying to understand what goes on, one after the other.
1: But viruses evolve. And the concept of a vaccination is, or vaccine is going to take so long that by the time you get the vaccine, the virus has already evolved to something else.
2: I think that's certainly what we saw happen with uh, H1N1. Uh, that was the influenza pandemic that began, sometimes referred to as swine flu, back in uh, 2009 right. if I remember correctly, where it, it wasn't that that virus evolved, but that by the time the vaccines were available, the world understood, of course, that the virus wasn't nearly as deadly as as even regular seasonal influenza. But of course, uh, Another example that I think is really relevant to your point, Dan, is Zika, where we knew about Zika. That had been identified in the 1950s in Uganda, if if I remember correctly, and it mutated in a way that was very surprising and unexpected to cause birth defects uh, in Brazil and all across Latin America. And so the degree to which we can predict, I think... Perhaps it can be improved, but uh, I I wouldn't put as much faith in in our ability to map every virus as as, um, some others.
0: Well, coming back to what you said there, though Dr Tedros said this very clearly uh, at one of the press conferences over the last few days. Invest today or pay more later. And this is exactly your point. You know, this epidemic could become a pandemic. We don't know yet. We'll return to that prognosis in, in a moment or two. It's already knocked billions off the Chinese economy, billions off the travel and tourism industry, when your point would be possibly we could have identified this risk and prevented it jumping species, possibly.
3: Yeah, prevention and preparedness are crucial uh, because when a virus emerges, especially in a country like China, one billion people, the density of the population, this close proximity animals and humans, then it's difficult to to, to catch it quickly and you have the devastating economic effects that, that it has. Same for Ebola. It probably came from a child eating bushmeat and look what happened.
2: I think no matter how good we become at identifying viruses and risks in advance, no matter how smart our and, and fast our technology development is, Um, What we also need to pay attention to is, of course, the social system within which viruses emerge. And I think the more we learn about the origins of this outbreak in China, there seems to be uh, agreement that information could have begun spreading much more freely and openly uh, throughout the month of December, that perhaps that would have allowed time for people to begin to put in place measures to prevent the spread.
1: But, of course, in order to stop or prevent this kind of epidemic, you need 100 percent national cooperation. Everyone has to be on board, because if one or two countries are not on board and the epidemic starts there, then it's just going to spread. So it really demands a huge amount of cooperation, especially countries giving information to the WHO.
0: This is where the, the international health regulations come in, though, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the reasons for having these is that some countries would, would be frightened of confiding that they had a problem because of the damage it might do. Of course, China has been open about having a problem and it's still there's still massive economic damage and reputational damage, I think.
3: Yeah. No, you're right. uh, First of all, the international health regulations are not new. Uh, These are the last edition of a string of international treaties and so on that goes back to the 19th century. So countries started cooperating uh, so much long ago because they couldn't stop epidemics in isolation. Uh, And so the the big uh, uh, novelty with the current edition of the IHR is precisely what you said, is to overcome the fear of countries to communicate what's going on for fear of overreaction. So WHO trying to calm everybody down by providing good information, good guidance, by even keeping information confidential to a certain extent, it's allowed to do that. And because uh, the world is very transparent, it's very difficult even for a country with a level of social control of China to conceal health events beyond a certain magnitude. Even SARS, while the government was denying, it was very clear based on the internet and social media. So they should come clean, they should communicate, they should collaborate.
0: Let's come back now to the kind of progress of this virus itself. We can just hear now the latest caseload.
4: As of 6 a.m. Geneva time today, there were 31,211 confirmed cases in China and 637 deaths. For the last two days, uh, there have been fewer reported new infections in China, which is good news, but at the same time, we caution against reading too much into that. The numbers could go up again.
0: What we seem to be seeing, Suri, is cases still rising sharply in Hubei province, not rising so sharply in, across China and not really rising much at all in the, the rest of the world. I mean, it's still, you know, a couple of hundred cases in the rest of the world. Now, what does that tell you?
2: Well, I think for a number of people, of course, outside China, a sigh of relief because the numbers have not gone up nearly as quickly outside the country as as they are going on inside the country. And I think one of the biggest areas where we're likely to see a crisis in the days and the weeks to come is actually in Wuhan and in Hubei province, where you also see the health system is absolutely um, struggling under the weight of trying to provide medical care for um, both confirmed cases, suspected cases, of course, every other medical need that does not stop in the middle of a coronavirus outbreak. And so while the world has Rightly been um, alarmed and concerned about what could happen. I do think that today uh, the crisis is really uh, still concentrated within China, and that as much international support as is possible should be flowing to to the country if if the government allows. Of course,
0: Januka, what about you? What do what do you think? Looking at the the figures right now, I mean, you watched SARS, you watched other outbreaks. <sighs>
3: I think Suri is right. It's, a, it's fundamentally a Chinese problem. I think it's actually surprising that there are only a, a relatively low number of cases worldwide and only one death in the Philippines of somebody who had a pre-existing illness. So that's very reassuring in a way. And that you can also look back even to SARS, that was stopped in six months, uh, H1N1, Ebola. So these diseases could really be the new Spanish flu, but they are not. So even with all the imperfection, it means that the system of international control, to certain extent works. And it can limit the, the magnitude or the spread. So I would have a bit of a note of um, optimism.
0: So I'm going to go out on a limb here. We know there's a lot we don't know. But do we know enough to not be too anxious? Danny, what do you think? You've listened to it all.
1: No, I, I think there is, I said before, a certain politics here of China bashing. Uh, but I do think there is enormous progress in the transparency, and in cooperation. That, to me, is the biggest problem. Is everyone giving all of the information, and can we figure out what to do together? Because if we don't, then we're going to be in trouble. I also think that there's certain things about this particular virus that we seem to know more and more about, so that even if there is an evolution of the virus, we seem to have more information about how to deal with it. Uh, So in the future, that seems to me, all of that seems to be positive and somewhat optimistic. However, it's always the unknown, which we don't know.
2: I think that, um, I mean, I would agree with Dan that certainly much more transparency than before, a lot more information flow. It's not obvious to me that we have uh, 100% information transparency, Mm -hmm. though. I do think there's a lot of information that I have not yet seen in the public domain, actually, that I think is very important. For example, um, what is the age distribution of all the cases? If we're really looking at 30,000 plus cases, we have surprisingly little data, actually. Um, Some reassurances that perhaps it primarily affects older people with pre-existing conditions. But um, until we have a much better understanding of the behavior of this virus, I would not um, sleep well at night just quite yet. But I do think that another bright spot um, in the response to this outbreak has been the rapid degree of scientific collaboration. We see the genomic sequencing data being shared and used by multiple countries. At the same time, as usual, some of the more political questions, do we really have all the information um, that we should be receiving on a daily basis from within China and beyond remains an open question. Who is going to get access um, to uh, drugs or vaccines or diagnostics when those are in fact developed? What would the price of those products be? I mean, these are big questions that have remained unresolved from uh, certainly before H1N1, before Ebola, and, and they remain unresolved today. Job
3: for the WHO? So all these questions are a broader question than just the, the immediate response to an outbreak. Uh, Continue. These a systemic issue. They're big, they're very political. There are things that we haven't discussed and maybe we won't have time to discuss, but one of the other concerns is the what we call antimicrobial resistance. The fact that these pathogens become quickly resistant to the medicines we have on the shelf and they become untreatable, and uh, so this make things even worse, and even worse for developing countries their struggle to begin with. So it also builds, one problem builds on the other. So WHO is facing a pretty difficult landscape, technically, politically, economically, and so on.
0: Well, unfortunately, that is all we've got time <sighs> for today. Gianluca Burci, sorry Moon, Daniel Warner, thank you very much for joining us. We haven't answered all the questions that people have, I'm sure, but maybe we could stick with what the WHO has been telling us all week: is stay with the science, evidence-based policy making, in your own life and your government's too. We hope. Thank you for listening. I'm Imogen, folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time. And thank you all for listening.
3: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.